Good afternoon, folks. Thanks for uh, coming back to the uh, immigration track. This, uh, this debate will be on what's next for uh, immigration reform. And I, I think when a lot of uh, stakeholders ask themselves that question, the answer is uh, likely nothing for a while. But we'll leave it to the experts to, uh, to debate that. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping. Please uh, set your phones to silent uh, if you are going to uh, be on Twitter. We uh, have a hashtag, TribuneFest, and also uh, TTF, hashtag TTF Immigration, just to let people know that you're here sitting, listening to us. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, just start off with some uh, brief introductions, and then we'll get, we'll get started. To my right is uh, Mr. Eddie Aldrete. He is a senior vice president at IBC Bank, and he monitors local, state, and federal policies that impact the banking industry and international trade. I like to say he's, uh, he can spew out data like nobody's business. I mean, he can, you ask him the, the fertility rate in Russia right now, and he could probably tell you what it is. Um, so it's, it's good to have him as far as the, uh, the demographic look and what's going on with immigration. Immediately to his right is Senator Jose Rodriguez, who represents the great West Texas town of El Paso. Uh, which borders uh, Chihuahua. Now your district has 350 miles of the border, more or less. He's a former county attorney for uh, the county of El Paso as well. To his right is uh, Congressman Pete Gallego from Alpine, who has 29 counties, um, starting from East El Paso to the, uh, going down the Big Bend, part of uh, Bear County as well. And to his uh, right is Mr. Ali Nirani, who was nice enough to join us from D.C. Uh, He's at the National Immigration Forum since 2009. Uh, Its mission is to doubt the value of immigrants and immigration to the United States. He's got uh, more than a decade of public policy advocacy. Um, So it's a pleasure to have these gentlemen here. One note, we did invite uh, Congressman Joe Barton, but he uh, he fell ill at the last minute, so I apologize that he's not going to be able to be here. But we'll go ahead and uh, get started. A quick round of applause for our uh, panelists here. And... uh, Mr. Uh, Narani, I want to start with you because it seems like uh, there's been a lot of uh, heat on the president for changing his mind on some sort of executive action, but um, it seems like that might be the only likely form of any, great, any immigration reform that's going to happen, um, at least for the rest of the year. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? And what is it, what is it going to look like once he, uh, I guess, gets less nervous about the elections and decides to do something? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I, gotta, uh, I want to thank the Tribune for pulling this together and thank the congressman for all of his hard work and it's great to see this uh, senator as well. Um, done a lot of work with uh, both of them, and I got to have to say something nice about Eddie because he's on my board. Um, <laughs> no, but IBC nice. Bank has always been a, a great partner and a supporter. I, I think you know we're not going to see anything legislatively, uh, really. I think anything coming together substantive potentially till next year. Um, you know, the, the ball is in uh, the president's hands. Uh, he could do something as simple as extending deferred action for parents of dreamers. He could go bigger and looking at specific sectors of the economy, or it could land somewhere in between. Um, based on you know, our conversations, I don't think they've decided. Um, but I do think that once that happens, uh, then you know, the speaker, uh, whoever the majority leader is next year in the Senate, they're going to have a really big opportunity. And their opportunity is going to uh, be to pass legislation to make things permanent. Uh, because whatever the president does, it will be temporary. Sure. Um, and, uh, but on, on the other hand, it will address the needs and the safety of you know, potentially millions and millions of families in our communities. Can, can you speak a little bit to uh, the, the vote that was taken just recently where a handful of uh, vulnerable Senate Democrats voted with the Republicans to, uh, a lot of people say it was just a symbolic vote, but they, in essence, voted to end DACA. Is that correct? Uh, in essence. Um, you know, so, so to kind of look at the politics of this right now is that in 2014, you've got the majority of the Senate seats that are in play taking place in places in states where, frankly, the Hispanic vote is not, is, is not large enough to play a critical role. Uh, Louisiana, North Carolina, um, Arkansas, Colorado, you can make a case that it will play a critical role. So you saw many of those senators side with the Republicans saying that, you know, through the continuing resolution that uh, funding or implementation of DACA should be uh, eliminated and that authority should be rescinded. Um, the politics of immigration are pretty ugly right now. Sure. Um, and I think it's really uh, important that uh, not only let uh, the Hispanic vote, but the broader community uh, come together to really uh, urge Congress to move forward. And you know, from our perspective, that's where we're finding hope. Um, you know, over the last month or so, we've done over a dozen conversations across the country with conservative faith, law enforcement, and business leaders. Uh, it was in Spartanburg last week. Uh, and if you think like the, tech, the politics of immigration are tough in Texas, you should go to South Carolina. Um, but in South Carolina, we had you know, evangelical pastors, business leaders, and law enforcement saying, you know what, we've got to get this done. Uh, Mr. Adretta, before we, we came on, I, I mentioned the fact that in 
presentations that he's given, he had a, uh, a little video clip of, of the, uh, the cartoon, the uh, Family Guy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it, it featured a, uh, a rancher who was building a fence. And there was a, a Hispanic guy that was trying to move to the left of the fence and cross. And he had a, the rancher had the gun. He's like, nope. Then he went to the right. He said, nope. Then he was trying to jump over. And the guy's like, nope. So the Hispanic guy said, you want help building fence? He's like, okay, come on over. It seems, and that was a couple of years ago. And it seems like we could have joked about it in that sense, and, but hit on a point where it's, it, it, you, know, you had to address uh, the need for labor. But do you see it as uh, an issue that we can't take that? I don't want to say it was ever taken lightly, but it seems to be more volatile to what you just said. Do you see that as well whenever you talk about immigration reform, <clears throat> that there is, no, uh, there is no way for it not to be so divisive? Um, there, there is a way. And um, unfortunately, um, you know, Congress hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, Congress tends to get stuck um, in the immigration reform versus border security, the chicken and egg question, which one comes first, sure. and they keep debating that. Um, the reality is this problem would be a lot easier to solve, and I think cooler heads would prevail if we could focus on, um, on a different component and the most pressing need. We're seeing massive labor shortages across the country in a variety of industries. Um, what we don't hear coming out of, um, out of Congress, present company excluded, um, is the debate on what does our country need? We have countries like Canada that um, that don't uh, put all their emphasis on the law enforcement component. They put big emphasis on recruitment. So they send recruiters all over the world because they need nuclear physicists. They need rocket scientists. They need uh, physicians. They need bricklayers. And they go and find the best talent. We're in a global race for talent right now. Uh, but unfortunately, our, our, our country's stuck on the chicken and egg question of immigration reform and border security. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're front and center in the Washington, D.C. You're actually on the floor. And uh, Senator Cornyn, as a matter of fact, a couple, a couple hours earlier, he said, you know, that my party is, is partly responsible for all the gridlock and why nothing gets done. You know, he, I mean, he did have his fair share of criticism for the, the Senate Democrats and for the White House, obviously. But what is it, from your perspective, what is it going to take or what's going to happen, or is there no hope, um, like he said, maybe until after the election? Well, I will tell you that one of my biggest disappointments was, you know, having, I've only been there, uh, obviously, I'm in my first term, but having watched public policy debates for a long time, this is the first time that I've ever seen that coalition of, you know, you have the uh, employers and the employees, the faith community, the law enforcement community, you have everybody joined up on the sa singing from the same hymn book. And if you can't get it done when you have everybody on the same side, I mean, that doesn't say really good things about our democracy in, in, in that sense, because clearly people want to do it. The challenge is, I mean, I think this is a country, I mean, this is a country that has put people on the moon. We, we can do immigration reform, mm -hmm. but you've got to take the politics out of it. So many people are focused on just the raw uh, politics of it in. And, and frankly, you know, people who drive the conversation are not from the border area. They're from Iowa, or they're from New York, or they're from different places, and they don't really have the... What they know about immigration and the border is what they read about or see on the internet or, or whatever. It's not like they live it and breathe it the way that folks who live along the border do, and so they don't understand it as well. I remember the first conversation we had, uh, you said that you, you missed Austin because you got more done at the state level, and I, that was shocking in and of itself <laughs> when you make that comparison. But uh, Senator, I want to ask you uh, there's um, whenever, uh, like for instance, the, uh, the, the, border, the current border surge is going on in the Rio Grande Valley, and there's a lot of criticism in saying, oh, well, you know, they just want amnesty. If there's some sort of immigration reform, those people would immediately vote for the Democrats or whatnot. Do, do you see that a lot of um, immigrants that are here want full-on citizenship, or do, they just, or do some of them just want to be able to work and walk around and not, not be able to, to live freely but not reach the status of citizenship? Because I think that's... That's a key point on, on whether or not they attain that goal. Well, first, I think we need to get a fact straight. Uh, nobody's talking about amnesty. Mm -hmm. uh, the other side keeps insisting that what's being offered is amnesty. But we know that uh, the Senate bill that passed has got a lot of conditions in it, including paying penalties and so forth. So it's not amnesty. And secondly, uh, we all need to be concerned about the falsehoods, the misrepresentations that are constantly made by our state leadership and some of the national folks up in Washington about the reality of the border and the conditions on the border. Uh, I think that the immigrants have been, in fact, demonized over the years uh, to the point where people have a hard time cutting through all of that rhetoric 
And getting down to the basic question that you just asked, what do they want? Well, we know from, from history, we know from the studies up to the present, we know from t interviewing the people that are coming over, all they want is an opportunity to have a good life for themselves and their family. They're looking for economic security, just like all the rest of us. And, and it seems to me that the studies indicate, including the latest report from the Center for Public Policy Priorities, that immigrants contribute to the growth in this country, that immigrant entrepreneurs uh, are key to the Texas economy in the future. So there's no question they're coming here because they want to have the American dream that all of us have had and what this country, country has always um, uh, proposed to people as the nation of immigrants. Can I add two points to that real sure. quick? Um, number one, uh, not just immigrants, but border communities have been demonized as being unsafe. And uh, USA Today um, uh, did a, uh, released a study about a, uh, six or eight months ago that said if you were within all the communities within 50 miles of the border were far safer than the communities that were further inland. Point number one. Um, point number two um, to, the, um, to the aspect of uh, uh, speaking about the facts, um, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate that we get stuck in this emotional bubble um, and people get stuck on this, um, this one common debate. But um, the senator's exactly right. You know, you got to get down to what the real issues are and you solve the real issues, and then you can move forward. But, so, so there's also the argument that the border communities are safer or, or communities with large immigrant populations, undocumented immigrant populations, are, are safer because these people don't want to cause trouble because they know that they will get in trouble. That's, but stuff does happen on the border. I mean, so you were a former, a former prosecutor. I mean, there is, there is violence on the border. But I want to ask if, there's, if you could uh, speak to that. What are, are these communities safer because these folks... Um, don't want to get in trouble. I mean, it obviously behooves them not to get in trouble to get, uh, say, caught with uh, secure communities, which uses fingerprints to see if somebody's here in the country illegally. But why, why is that statistic uh, so debatable, and do you think it's true that border communities are far and large safer? I mean, based on the data that Eddie cited, uh, I mean, the, Alan Gomez of the USA Today did an incredible study where he dug into Department of Justice data and found that, you know, I think it was up to 100 miles within the border, the communities are safer. And I don't think it's as simple as people not wanting to get in trouble. I think it's um, the fact that law enforcement in these communities actually have a relationship with their immigrant, the immigrant community. Okay. So there's so much of so When you go across the country, the law enforcement who, like a Joe Arpaio in Phoenix, when they are just eager to enforce immigration law, the immigrant community is pushed away from them. They don't trust the, 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 their local law enforcement because the local law enforcement, they assume that the local law enforcement will want to deport them. But in places like El Paso, uh, Brownsville, McAllen, Laredo, those local law enforcement agents, they have a relationship with their immigrant communities so that when there's a crime, the immigrant, documented or not, feels that they can report that crime. And therefore, they're not going to be a, a victim of an unreported crime. And as soon as the, the law enforcement knows about it, then they can actually pursue the, the perpetrator. That is the, that's how you keep a community safe, is if there's trust between the community and law enforcement. Uh, if, I, if I could ask you, Mr. Adarete, just to kind of break it down, you know, immigration reform, it includes so, so many aspects. Of it, but just if you could speak to the economic benefits of, of passing the DREAM Act, um, just, just that, that um, group of undocumented immigrants, the, the, the youth and the, the people that have worked and studied here. I mean, do you have any stats on the, what that, what, how much of a boon to the economy that would be? Yeah, two points. Um, first one, um, to the question that you asked the senator about citizenship, mm -hmm. Um, I think it was MAP.org, which is Mexican-Americans Thinking Together. They released a study that they did not too long ago that showed 65% of the people that they interviewed in one state, I think it was the state of uh, Guanajuato, mm -hmm. had no desire to seek U.S. citizenship. Um, their families were there in Guanajuato. Uh, they wanted to uh, come and earn a living and send money back home. And I think sometimes people forget. They just make the assumption that if they're coming here that they want every benefit known to man, and they want uh, everything else here. Um, Could, let me interrupt you. Couldn't that vary, though, by Mexican state? I mean, Tamaulipas is, is not the safest place on earth right now. I mean, wouldn't it be, if you, if you took the same poll and you asked the, the people on the border Mexican states, would they have a different reaction? Well, yeah, if you want to talk about this issue in a vacuum, yes, you can discuss that. But one of the parts that doesn't get debated a lot is what's happening in Mexico on the economic front. Sure. There are states' number one trading partner. There are nations' number two trading partner. 
And if you look at what's happening in the Mexico, uh, in the Mexican energy reform area, sure. um, my biggest fear is that these strong, good, high-paying jobs are, are going to be created by this energy reform, and all the people that are here um, and are looking for a reason to get home are going to start leaving. That's going to cause massive issues here. You already have negative net migration. We do. Is, um, is it negative? I mean, because last time, I mean, the most of it said it was at least had stopped, but I don't, has that trend reversed? I, I think a lot of it is being precipitated by all the reforms that are, that are occurring and the, and the negative in climate that we have here in the U.S. Okay. But to your point about yeah. dreamers, the reality is um, I represent the private sector, mm-hmm. um, and here's how we look at it. Who takes better care of a home? A renter or an owner? The owner does. Um, who takes care, better care of, of a company? Is it uh, an employee or an employee that's also a shareholder in that company? So who would take better care of this country? Uh, someone who's just here temporarily or someone who's a citizen who has something invested in the country? Um, so to all those people, to all the members of Congress, who, who see this as, as a negative, mm. um, I would take a, a look back at our history in this country and see how this country was built on the backs of immigrants and all the contributions that they can make. So there's a huge economic benefit. I don't think there's any question that the more people who pledge allegiance to our flag, the stronger our country is. And I don't think there's any question that people who are coming here because they want to work that's the kind of people that our country needs. It is uh, easy to get caught up in all of the name-calling and finger-pointing and all of those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it is a simple, you know, one of the basic tenets of economics is supply and demand. There is a supply of jobs here. Uh, there is a uh, uh, demand for more people. There is a supply of workers uh, over there who want to come and take these jobs. And frankly, you know, I represent a huge piece of the Eagle Ford sh- uh, shale area. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is common. All- My family had a restaurant in Alpine from 1917 to 1997 for 80 years. This is a great time to open up a restaurant in Eagle Ford shale. It, you'd make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that to run a restaurant, you need uh, a cashier, and you need waiters, and you need dishwashers, and you need cooks. And you know everybody that would normally have those jobs? You know where they are right now? They're out in Eagle Ford Shale country, making a lot more money. And so we need employees. In Presidio, where they grow onions, there's not a lot of Americans who are standing in line waiting to pick onions in Presidio when it's 125 degrees. And the senator knows that well. He and I represent Presidio County. And so it's an issue of... We've got jobs here that somebody has to fill. That stuff has to make it to our table somehow. On, on the flip side of the argument, though, you say a lot of, a lot of these people that are, that are here legally are U.S. citizens, they won't do those jobs, not because it's, it's outside, it's in the hot sun, it's backbreaking labor, it's just because the wages aren't there. Is there any truth to that? And do immigrants uh, that work uh, without authorization, do they bring down wages? I mean, I think that's, if that's true, that's a fair argument. That's a fair counterpoint. Well, I mean, look at the flip side of it. Um, we believe that if you bring everybody to legal status, mm-hmm. then everybody can compete for the same job at the same wage. In the current environment, the only person that's winning is the unscrupulous employer who's pushing down the wages of the undocumented immigrant, the wages of the documented immigrant, and the wages of the, of the U.S. citizen, all working in the same place. So you pass immigration reform, there's all of a sudden a level playing field where everybody can compete for the same job at the same wage. Uh, so oftentimes people look at it through the negative, or wages being, will wages be pushed down? Yes. Wages are being pushed down because crooked employers are exploiting a broken system. So let's fix the system and level the playing field. We, we, uh, and we, we often fall into, uh, I don't want to say, say trap, but to, to the, the, tr- the conversation, uh, at least in Texas, and it's a valid point in Texas, that always uh, we begin with, with Mexican migration um, and maybe from Central America because that's where we are. But can you speak to what other country, where people are coming from other than, than uh, Mexico and Central America? And because, uh, again, going back to a keynote that Senator Cornyn had, he said he has a website in uh, four or five languages, you know, four or five languages. He mentioned Vietnamese and Chinese. So can you speak to the demographics of other countries coming to the United States? Well, I mean, this is the amazing part of the immigration debate. Yes, the majority of the popu- immigrant population will be uh, Hispanic or Latino, mm-hmm. uh, by and large, from Mexico. When you look across the diaspora, or I'm sorry, the, the community, uh, you're seeing great diversity from Asia, great uh, diversity from South Asia. Um, I think now you're seeing, I think the fastest growing 
immigrant population in the country is actually uh, the, the Asian population, um, because you know that's where you're seeing the, inf- the influx of of the immigrant community. Um, so you know, from our perspective, you know, it's not just a Latino issue; it's an issue that's important for us as a country. And you were talking a little bit about the changes in the economy. We've started looking, at, for example, at the healthcare economy. Three of the four fastest growing occupations of the country are healthcare occupations. Nurses, personal care aides, healthcare aides. So there are an incredible amount of opportunities in the healthcare sector that are good for not only immigrants, but also for the rest of us. However, does the immigrant community have the skill set to take advantage of those opportunities? When you look at the foreign born population, they're actually less likely, they're more likely to have a high school diploma or less. So in order to drive the healthcare economy, the foreign born skill set needs to be picked up. And then you look at status. If you move people from undocumented to legal resident to citizenship, it's a you know anywhere between a five and a fifteen thousand uh, dollar improvement in that person's income over you know, per year over their lifetime. So opportunity, skills, and status is what we believe is very important to not only the country's success, but for an individual immigrant to reach their fullest potential. So, and that applies whether the person is from Mexico, from China. From Australia, mm-hmm. uh, Congressman, you're you're very well versed in uh, in veterans issues. Is there is there current legislation, or is there at least an appetite to have that serve as some sort of a pathway to, to legal status? Because it seems like this uh, military service and and the pride one takes in, in serving, and uh, it seems to be at least that one issue that both parties can agree on. So, is there is there any um, you know it might it might seem not the most um, traditional way to address immigration reform, but what's going on in that front, if you could speak to that? Well, I would say that's one of the things that I worked on the hardest. I was very disappointed when we didn't get to the immigration reform part because for me, for example, there were, there were uh, uh, you need a sponsor as an example to become an American citizen. Well, if you're uh, an American soldier and, and your spouse is a non-citizen and your country asks you to go to Afghanistan or uh, anywhere in, in the Middle East and the worst possible scenario happens, and that is that, that uh, uh, your spouse is killed in the line of duty. A, a grateful nation, then, would deport, would deport your spouse because your spouse has, not lost, has now lost their sponsor. And, and frankly, that's an asinine uh, conclusion. Um, and so the idea, that's one of the things that, that I worked on really hard, and we were able to convince uh, through an executive order, actually, that was already done, uh, the president uh, made an exception uh, for uh, uh, military families because that's the core part. I mean, I, I know people who have gotten their American citizenship, uh, who have gone on to uh, go through law school and be successful in those kinds of things, who started off by signing up to serve in America's military, and they did a phenomenal job. And so I think that's an important pathway and needs to be recognized as such. I would, I would add to that, there, there's a, a coalition that we started, uh, Veterans for Reform, uh, really looking at the red, military readiness and the contribution of immigrants to uh, the military. And across the country, we found veterans who had served, um, and their family, spouses, extended family, parents, were undocumented. So this is an individual putting their life on the line for the United States of America. However, the, the United States of America was unwilling to legalize the status of their family. Uh, and, you know... So they would, they would tell their story of pride in their service, but incredible frustration and anger that their family had to live, frankly, in the shadows. Uh, Senator Rodriguez, um, and, and I said in, in the early, uh, earlier panel, which was on board security, that it seemed like you know, a few years back that you could take the two issues uh, individually, and now it seems like it's getting harder and harder to do. I'm not saying that you agree that that's the path that should be taken, but if that's the only way to address one issue and the other, what, in your opinion, should be done, can be done at the state level to, I guess, soothe fears about a porous border? Um, not getting too much into the misinformation about car bombs and ISIS and things like that, but just to, to be able to have a, a dialogue on what is needed, if anything, at the border in order for one to take place and then eventually fall in line with the other. Well, the problem is, the, and the difficulty is that you can't separate the, uh, the rhetoric uh, in order to be able to address it in a good, sound a way you have to address the false rhetoric. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's frankly overwhelming the discussion regarding what makes a safe border. Nobody talks about what the metrics should be. Everybody just says we need to have border security before we have uh, immigration reform. I, th- I think everybody uh, agrees and, that you're not going to have 100% you know, well, security, but what, what metrics do you have in mind? Well, well he, he, let me just finish by saying this. I think the comprehensive immigration reform 
is a key part of border security. I think once you pass comprehensive immigration reform, you will have a more secure border. You're going to have people that come out of the shadows. You're going to have people that are going to be openly cooperating with the police. You're going to have people that are more likely to report suspicious activity. Uh, as simple as that. And, and so, uh, you know, we need to get away from the border security and focus on what has already been discussed here is the pressing need for comprehensive immigration reform. It makes sense, right, from an economic standpoint, from a humane standpoint, uh, and, and, and for purposes of the growth of this state and this country, we can't do without the immigrants, as simple as that. We cannot do without the growing Latino population along our border communities. All our demographers have told us that, both state and national. We've got to educate them. We've got to provide health care. Uh, and we're not doing that. Now, we're not doing that, unfortunately, because I keep going back to these lies, these falsehoods, these misimpressions that are being put out there by state leadership and national leaders that are using the immigrants just as a political pawn in their partisan uh, approach to public policy. So I want to take his comment one step further <clears throat> because uh, we can never achieve border security without immigration reform. Um, the analogy that I use is if you have a pipe that's burst in your kitchen, um, do you send in more mops or do you fix the pipe first? Uh, we keep sending in more mops because we keep doubling and tripling the size of Border Patrol. The way to solve the problem is to disincentivize um, the reasons to enter the country illegally. Um, and the way you do that is if we have a need for half a million low-skilled workers in this country, why do we only give 5,000 visas? Okay. Um, you ask any Border Patrol agent on the southern border, uh, especially in Texas, um, what's the answer? And he'll, I remember one agent telling me, you see that guy on the other side of the river? Can you tell me if he's a brain surgeon or a landscaper? And I said, no, I can't. He said, I can't either. But by law, I'm required to chase him. And my biggest fear is chasing a landscaper when um, someone that means his harm is going to enter the country. And to the other comment that the senator made, um, we have had some state leaders that have made comments um, uh, recently. We've had people say, shut the border down. We've had people say that they want to restore law and order to South Texas as if it doesn't already exist. Um, and we've had um, other comments as well, and we have to get away from that. Okay. Uh, Mr. Naran, another sort of policy question, individual policy piece. What, what, what Mr. Adoretta said about the, the visas, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you're, you're the expert, but from what I understand, there's the same amount of visas um, that are applied to, say, uh, work visas to, say, Mexico, which is right here, um, you know, and it's the same for countries around the world. And I think even uh, Senator Cruz offered an amendment to the Senate bill that would have done away with that and said it should be need-based. Is there an appetite for that? And I, and I it's mentioned Senator Cruz because that seems to be something where there could be support from both parties. Well, there is a balance here uh, um, between family-based immigration and work-based immigration. Uh, so a lot of people say, well, you go to Canada and you're going to be able to, to get to Canada because, you know, based on your skill set. You're, you're, if you have more, the more skills you have, uh, the more likely you are to, to be able to get a visa to go to Canada or any other country. Um, but the fact is that America is unique. Uh, our, our values... Our history is based on this balance between family immigration and work immigration. So yes, we can shift that balance. And I think the Senate bill passed last year uh, took a very, very important step in that, in that, in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, they established a system that uh, work-based immigration you know, in different sectors, uh, agriculture, high-skill, low-skill, would fluctuate according to the economy. So to oversimplify it, uh, as unemployment fell, the number of work visas uh, would increase, or supply vice versa. And demand. Supply, yeah, go figure. Supply and demand. <laughs> um, yeah, those senators are so smart. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's the challenge. We have to figure out that balance. We do not think that our immigration system should be work-based only. Okay. There always has to be this balance between family and and work-based needs. And uh, Congressman, I'll ask you. Going back to the along the similar lines that I asked uh, the, the senator, there was a debate earlier. Um, you know, if if you were able to ease fears about uh, the, uh, an insecure, unsecure border in order to have comprehensive immigration reform. I'll go back to the fact that you represent 29 counties, uh, the largest swath of, of the border of any, I think, uh, Congress. Is that correct? Is that just in Texas or is that in the country? 
I have uh, of the U.S.-Mexico border. Sure. The district is about forty-two percent of it. So okay. I've got the biggest chunk of the U.S.-Mexico border more than anybody else. The, and then the argument that's often made is that, um, you know, by Governor Perry and others, is that, that Texas doesn't have enough uh, as many border patrol agents per mile. Um, and I, I think that's something that can be that can be uh, validated and actually measured and seen when you just look at numbers. So what's what 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 can Congress do to put more boots on the ground? Is it a funding thing, or is this just one of those issues that's never going to get anywhere because of partisan gridlock? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't be running for Congress if I was if I wasn't optimistic about you know something getting done. Sure. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, something has to get done. It's just frustrating for me to watch because uh, of the fact that you have all of these. Uh, outside interests that really, as I indicated earlier, don't understand uh, the border. I, I will tell you, having grown up along the border and representing you know, more than two-thirds of the Texas-Mexico border, we all want to sleep well. We all want to sleep safely in our beds. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I don't know about one of our panelists, but I, I know that, that three of us are parents. I mean, we want our kids to be safe. We, that's not... Um, and so, uh, you know, I think you start from a position where um, you, have, you take these common interests and, and you move forward from there. And I think that you can have a law enforcement present, I th- presence. I think a law enforcement presence is very important. But at the end of the day, you also have to uh, worry about uh, the impact on business. Because, frankly, if you look at the delays, uh, you know, if time is money, then uh, the delays in crossing bridges in El Paso, as an example, or in other places, is pretty significant. I mean, as a kid, you would go, I mean, and, you know, Eddie is from Del Rio, and you would go uh, over to Acuna, and you'd have lunch, and you'd come right back. And the and, beer. And, 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 and so... Yeah, not when I was 12. <laughs> 13. Well, I was going to say, in Ciudad Juarez, we did things a little different. You know, I mean, now you can't do that anymore, because it takes you so long sure. Sure. Um, to get back. And so you have to design a system, I think, that is that is practical and that is realistic and is designed uh, to fit the lifestyle that the border has become accustomed to because we, we're, we're, we're not, uh, we're business partners and we're family and we're, um, you know, there's so many of us that have cousins on one side or the other and do business on one side or the other. It, it's, uh, uh, it's important that we recognize that as opposed to the concept of we need to build this wall sure. and separate ourselves from the folks who live on the other side of the river. The other, the other thing is, we don't, you know what? We don't need more boots in the ground. The, the, the Wilson Center, which, as you know, is based in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. it's nonpartisan, does excellent scholarly work on Mexico and, and other Latin American issues. They issued a report called the, the Border. And in that report, it gives you the data of the numbers of apprehensions along the U.S.-Mexico border. In the El Paso sector, to give you an example, uh, for 2013, we had four and a half apprehensions per agent. Per agent. Sure. Four and a half for the whole year. Sure. Right? And so we, we've gone from literally, what was it, 2,500 uh, agents to 22,000 now. Is that total and north and south, or is that just on the southern border? Th- th- that's in the southern, southern border. border okay. In the southern border. Okay. And so to, to say we need more boots in the ground in order to secure the border is nonsense, sheer, utter nonsense. And you asked earlier, well, what does it take to secure the border? Well, you know, those of us who live on the border, like the congressman said, we feel safe. We're the safest communities in the country sure. in terms of murder rates, in terms of robberies, assaults, you name it. We are the safest community. So we, we feel safe. So that's my criteria. I don't feel threatened. There's never been terrorists coming in through the southern border. We don't, you know, run into immigrants that have been classified by the Homeland Security Administration coming in from Mexico that are security threats. So, you know, to keep talking about securing the border is just a distraction from addressing the real issue at hand, which is comprehensive immigration reform. You want to add, add something? Uh, I mean, I think he, he, made, the, uh, he made the point. Um, the, the reality is that, again, I just want to go back to the notion that um, if you want to look good and feel warm and fuzzy, sure, hire more Border Patrol. If you want to solve the problem, then um, let's set the visa limits at what we need, both for workforce and family issues, to allow the people to come in here. You know, again, Border Patrol agents will tell you, um, 
find out if, do, if we have a job for that person and that person's willing and ready and able to work, then send them down there to the bridge, process them, do a background check on them, fingerprint them, and if they're good and they have no criminal background, then let them in. I mean, if we have a need for their labor and they, they can help our economy run, then great, do it. And by doing that, then you lessen the incentivize for people to enter the country illegally. This is the same thing. We're in a city right now with a major interstate highway. Um, and I know downtown Austin, you can't go very fast, but um, on the outskirts of Austin, you can. Now, what would happen between San Antonio and Round Rock if you set the speed limit at 20 miles an hour? You would have a lot of people violating the law. Mm -hmm. So is the answer to hire more troopers, GPS troopers, and more Austin PD? No, the answer would be to set the speed limit that allows the traffic to flow. That's what we need to do. We need to set the visa limits that allow the people to flow. I still like the, the Family Guy clip better, but, you know, it was a good analogy. Um, if, if I, w- I want to get into to the, to the current situation on the, on the border in, in the Valley and how much that might affect uh, uh, future policy. So I guess first question I'll ask uh, Mr. Narani is how much is of the administration's policies are they, are they at all to blame for that? Because this is, a, you know, they, they, were, they were lured over here because they had some misinformation. You know, the, the You're talking no, about the unaccompanied the minors. The unaccompanied minors and, and, and the family units as well. Uh, yep. I, was, I was in the shelter in McCown a lot, and I interviewed some of these women that brought over children, and they did say, yep. I thought I would get a bed measles. I thought they're being lenient on women with children. I wanted a better life for my son or for my daughter or whatnot, which is a valid concern. But they did say that they thought once they would get here, they would be well, given this is Well, this is the thing about that. Um, you know, deferred action for, for uh, children... Um, DACA, was uh, brought in, what, 2012, summer of 2012. So that is fully two years ago. Um, And I would have imagined that if the assumption that DACA was going to be the ticket into the country, then we would have seen a surge, let's just say last summer, 2013. Um, So I don't buy this idea that what the administration did led to this influx. My, you know, what I, what I've, as I've talked to researchers and others, um, and even even government officials in Central America and in Mexico, the difference is that once the drug cartels realized that they could make money off of trafficking people, off of, of smuggling people, that's when you saw the influx. Okay. So when that coyote was all of a sudden getting paid by the drug cartel and could could say, you know what, give me five thousand dollars and I'll get your kid into uh, the states. Um, that's when we saw the influxes, once the cartels uh, saw this was a money-making venture. And, I mean, we've also, I mean, I've seen reports where the cartels could, were, were, were pretty darn happy because not only were they making money, but they were taking customs, CBP, DEA, other federal law enforcement officials, and instead of going after the drug cartel, they were chasing an 8-year-old. Sure. Yeah, and, and to, to that point, and... Um, and I, th- I think you're right. Every, the, and granted, this is just anecdotal, but in, in interviews, uh, they would say that the line was, you know, leaving Honduras, paying the smuggler there, and he, in turn, would bribe Mexican Border Patrol and law enforcement. Then there's another, another payment to uh, the, the setas or whoever gets on the best or whatnot. Yep. Um, but the amazing thing is that they, you didn't see a lot of these, um, the, you know, like the mass kidnappings in Tamaulipas that you did a few years back yeah. because it seemed like everybody was making money and just like, kind of letting it happen. These kids were on buses. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this was like, this was like a... This was a, a criminal enterprise. And S- Senator, I want to I ask uh, you, how much do you affect the situation right now and the attention that it's getting is going to affect proposed legislation when you guys gavel back in? We saw what happened with the sanctuary cities a few sessions back. Um, it, it didn't pass twice, um, even though it was so built up. And I think a lot of people know what happened behind the scenes with the, um, you know, the construction industry and a lot of other lobbyists and, and philanthropic <coughs> excuse me, the philanthropic movement to stop this. What's going to happen now with this? I mean... You had, I think, uh, more than 100 bills yes. uh, filed in 2011. Yeah, some of those were, were filed even before you guys got, you know, right. got back in. So how much is that going to affect politics? And how much, is it, is it, how much of that is going to pass? You're going to have a, a major uh, shift in who comes back to Austin next year. So what do you see the future? Well, I, I certainly expect to see more anti-immigrant legislation being introduced, just as we saw in 2009, which was over 100 bills as well, mm-hmm. and 2011. Uh, at least if you believe the rhetoric that is being put out by... Uh, the candidate for lieutenant governor and the governor and all down the line. Everybody's in lockstep about having to seal the border, having to deal with this immigration invasion, having to deal with, you know, the, the issue from, from their point of view. And so I, I have no doubt that uh, Sanctuary Cities is coming back, okay. as well as some other draconian 
anti-immigrant legislation. But you will know. it pass this time, do you think? They have well, well you know what? Uh, the last time, you're right, the construction industry, I think uh, Mr. Perry out of Houston, uh, you know, the folks over at HEB and other places, the business community, mm -hmm. uh, had a big impact. But it wasn't just the philanthropic organizations. It was the faith-based and including evangelical Latino uh, churches, the, uh, law the the community at large, law enforcement, mm -hmm. my own sheriff, the sheriff from Houston, from the, all of the major cities said that uh, they don't support it. It's going to impact what undermines what, community what, policing. What, yeah. what he was saying earlier about mm -hmm. undermining community policing, people are not willing to cooperate with police, and so we're going to have to fight very hard. That's all I can tell you. I. I I tell people you need to be prepared to come and storm the Capitol because otherwise there's no question. Look, the majority's got the votes, right? And, and just like they did the last time, there was no two-thirds rule at the time we were dealing with it in, in special session. Mm -hmm. But because of the pressure, the unrelenting pressure from the business community and the faith-based organizations, the immigrant rights advocates, the social justice networks, uh, all of that cumulatively, I think, had the impact of not passing the law at that time, including some of the other bills. And so I, I, I'm fully expecting that you will see uh, the Capitol flooded when those issues start coming up in the next session. Con Congressman, at the, at the D.C. level, I mean, if there's um, this 2008 uh, provision to the anti-trafficking anti bill, that's not, that issue is probably not going to go away. So how do you see that playing out? Is there going to be some sort of deal made? Is there going to be a... You know, you had the, the Quay and Corn and the Humane Act. Um, you, you were opposed to it as well as a lot of your colleagues. But how does that play out in the future? What's, what's the, the, the most likely path to get both sides to agree on a watered-down version, or will one side capitulate and just meet the demands of the other? Well, I think like many things, I mean, that depends largely on uh, uh, several factors. I mean, it depends on what happens on November 4th, and uh, particularly on the Senate side. I mean, what does that uh, Senate look like? Uh, it depends on whether there's a good faith effort made to negotiate that with the uh, with the administration because you know truthfully right now uh, the house has has never really even negotiated between Republicans and Democrats the house hasn't really dealt uh, with the Senate uh, the none of neither house really deals well uh, with the White House so a lot of that depends on the you know what is the tenor what is the is there a good faith effort or is this more uh, political uh, chest pounding where nobody really wants to reach an agreement because that's what I've seen so far is that is this idea that this is a great issue for November let's keep it alive sure. let's keep it going and so there hasn't really been a, a good faith effort to uh, uh, to fix it I, I will tell you the, the, the prosecutor in me um, when I prosecuted and, and you know to use domestic violence because we just celebrated the uh, uh, the anniversary of the domestic violence uh, 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 act, but um, I knew that the worst thing that you could do when somebody came to you who was a victim of domestic violence was to put them back in the same place where they had come from. And that uh, law that was signed by, by President Bush, I mean, that was the premise uh, of the entire law, is to make sure that in these certain situations, these people were not automatically repatriated to a place where they were going to go into the same condition as before. And I don't know that that's changed. I just think that you have to interview people to figure out, are you here because you want to be an American citizen and you want to live the American dream? Because if that's the case, then there's a line over here. Uh, but are you here because you're running for your life and if you go back, somebody's going to kill you? Then maybe you qualify for refugee status, and, and that's a different category. And I think you, the law recognizes that. Folks, I'm going to just real quick. I'm going to start taking questions after the senator's yeah. comments. So, if anybody has anything that they want to ask, if you feel free to line up, sir. It, it's not just the repatriation issue that, uh, which is you're right about that, but you also know, for example, in, in the county attorney's office, we we focused on doing a lot of community education on domestic violence and encouraging women to step forward, particularly in the colonias, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to report the domestic violence, and so. If, if, if you have law enforcement going around under sanctuary cities asking people for their status, you're not going to have women willing to come forward, and it's for the most part women, and reporting the crime in the first place. And never mind then down the line the repatriation that actually occurs to a dangerous uh, situation at home. 
So it's, it's also getting the cooperation of the victims and the testimony of the victims uh, to deal with domestic violence. Okay, great. Sir? Yes, thank you. Um, I agree that there's a lot of what I would call phony distraction in talking about securing the border. And one of the things that is surprising to me, I, I heard a number of years ago that a large percentage, it might be half, it might be more than half, of the people who are here illegally right now come here legally. That's because true. They just overstayed their visas. They overstayed their visas, exactly. Right. But 40 my, so my question is, how come we don't hear more about that you know, as a way of just admitting what's going on and also as a way of getting away from some of the phony ideas about securing the border because we could have a wall 3,000 feet high around all of our borders and let nobody in, but still people are coming in on planes legally. So if you have a system that does not work, people will, will evade it anyway. So whoever wants to answer that. Quite, why, yeah, why, isn't the, why, why is the attention shift on people that cross the border legally versus the overstays? Um, is it, is it, again, well, go back I, to I the will tell team. you, you know, again, having just gotten to Congress and not having you know, much in the way of, of, of seniority there, but I'm appalled that that, that happens. Uh, you would think in this age of computer technology um, that you could keep track of people who are here. You would know who's here and who isn't. But apparently they didn't and they can't. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I think uh, we need to look at is, uh, is the technology requirements uh, for an immigration system. Because frankly, I will tell you that the technology uh, systems that we have, especially along the border, are antiquated and they're not really the, the it's, it, it's not giving the folks on the front lines, they don't have the best tools uh, available to them. And that's definitely something that we should look Going at. Going back to your, we can put a man on the moon, we can find a way to You can fix this. Yeah. I really believe you can fix this. I, I think, I mean, everybody's mentioned this in one way or another. I mean, so much of the border debate is dominated by people who have never been to the border. Uh, it, it's pretty stunning. Um, and, I, you know, I've got to give a lot of credit to Eddie because you know, he's brought people to the border, so they see it, they experience it. And one thing that we haven't talked about is that, you know, if you want to invest resources in border security, what about ports of entry? Um, I've seen Department of Justice data that points to uh, the fact that the majority of guns, drugs, and money are smuggled actually through ports of entry. So you've got all these enforcement resources between ports of entry, but if you actually had ports of entry that were secure, that could facilitate trade, you would see trade... Being, you'd see the cost of trade decrease. You'd see uh, um, the the, conf- you know, the ability to confiscate drugs, gun and mon- guns, and money increase. And as a result, you'd see a much safer country. Uh, but instead, you've got politicians who've never been to the border ranting and raving about, again, you know, a really, really safe community mm-hmm. that's overwhelmed by nothing more than 22,000 CBP agents. And, and to give credit to, to local communities, there is an effort in, in El Paso, the public-private partnership, to form a pool of money to hire more CBP officers, and I think they have the same system except for inf- infrastructure in Laredo, which is the but, world's busiest port. I'm going to challenge you on that one. Okay. <clears throat> the reason there's a public-private partnership is because the federal government is underfunded customs sure. by 5 to $6 billion, exactly. and so the community and others decided to uh, come together to try to make something happen. But the reality is we never should have reached that point, um, but to everyone's point on the panel... Um, you get stuck on the enforcement side. So to Ali's point, all the money yeah. goes to Border Patrol and not enough goes to customers. Right. Last uh, week or week and a half ago, we had a, a hearing of the Joint Committee on Border Wait Times. And that was one of the issues that we talked about. I mean, clearly, we've been talking about this for years, mm-hmm. about if you want to address problems at the border, you need to put more customs inspectors uh, in our ports of entry rather than more Border Patrol boots on the ground, as they're called. Uh, and... And uh, there's no question that there is this misunderstanding about what really can make the border safe. Uh, You know, being prosecutors, you and I know most of the drugs and the illicit activity takes place on the international bridges. So just real quickly to add to the senator's comment, um, if we stay on the path that we're on, we're approaching a point where you won't be able to cross the border in a day. And if you go back to the 9-11 Commission report... One of the things that was singled out by the commission was do not focus and become obsessed with security so much that you cut off your own economic engine. But, you know, the, 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 the frustration for me is that the people who are demanding border security the most, they won't, they're, they're not the guys that will vote to put, I mean, the, 
there's machines now, the technology is there for scanners that are much better than anything we've ever seen. And yet, we can't, I mean, Phil Vela struggles every day to get them to put one in Brownsville. We don't have them in Del Rio or Eagle Pass or Presidio. We don't have, I mean, how can you tell me you want a secure border on the one hand and then vote against the funding and not want to do the money to, to give us the, to equip, the equipment and, and the technology that we need to do the job. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm that's gonna, the I'm frustration gonna let her, for me. Is that people talk out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah. Oh, hi, you guys touched base on the cartel and the violence, and I understand that the violence has been exaggerated a lot, but being from Brownsville, I have personally seen, and, like, family has been kidnapped, and, like, I've lived through this, but... Um, through comprehensive immigration reform, like, what are your plans on working with the Mexican government to try to work with them to maybe, um, how do I say this, to work with them to fix the cartel backlash that's going to come with them losing their money on their drugs and their um, people paying them to get them imported in here? Like, how would you fix this cartel backlash, like, working with the Mexican government? Well, the, I mean, the U.S. government does have a presence in Mexico helping them fight their own corruption. But do you think, uh, to her question, do you think more should be done or more can be done? On well, I, I will tell you that it is an unfortunate uh, fact of life that uh, uh, in this, uh, if we're talking about economics, if one product doesn't sell, you start selling another one. And so I think what has happened with the cartels is uh, essentially they've become businesses. Uh, and, and, and so they've expanded the range of products uh, that they offer. And so if there's a demand for something else, they'll move into uh, something else. And so I, I uh, you know, from a law enforcement, I'm really passionate, frankly, about the law enforcement community because I, I spent that time as a prosecutor. But I, but I will tell you that our relationship with Mexico, it can always use improvement, but it is better. When I, I prosecuted the, the Years ago, there were some, some people who were rafting in the canyons of the Rio Grande. And they, were, they shot at some rafters from the Mexican side of the canyon. All right? And in those days, if you needed witnesses, if you, uh, even the defendants, you couldn't extradite them. Mexico wouldn't give you any Mexican citizen. They wouldn't hand over anybody to be prosecuted. And you know what? That's not the case today. Now there's a relationship between the Mexican law enforcement and, and, and the U.S. government where there are people, uh, uh, there are instances where, where their folks have been uh, extradited to face trial in the U.S. There's a more cooperative relationship now. Now, does it need to be better, and, and are there other issues on the Mexican side? Absolutely. One of the things that I would suggest, though, and, and you know, one of the reasons that you, that you see a slowdown, I think, uh, People from South America are coming in, but not as many Mexicans as we used to have. And that's because Mexico's middle class, Mexico's economy is clicking along at a faster rate than the American economy is. While America's middle class is shrinking, Mexico's middle class is actually growing. And so you see less and less Mexicans who, need, who feel the need to leave their families. If we could do that, if, if we could be of assistance, we spend so much money as a country dealing with other parts of the world. But if we could spend some money in our own backyard helping small businesses grow through uh, 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 small business development centers like the one in San Antonio, and they do a phenomenal job, uh, if we could help people rebuild their economies, then I think you would see a slowdown because people want to stay home. I don't think people want to leave. But would Mexico allow that? There's a lot of sovereignty issues between the two countries, and you, you all know that. I, I, I think there's always sovereignty issues, well, uh, and, I, and I'm not advocating, uh, but I think there's, you know, uh, Mexico has been uh, willing uh, over the course of the last few years uh, through the Merida Initiative and others to come to an agreements uh, with the U.S. And now, frankly, uh, we need to expand that, that range of, of negotiations with some of the other countries in Latin America because, you know, it wasn't the, the unaccompanied minors. They weren't Mexican. Sure. Okay? And so uh, we, we need to have these... these uh, 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 essentially understandings with other countries where where we can help them uh, uh, instead of, at least in my view, uh, because that's my backyard, obviously. I mean, I, I want to spend some money in my backyard. And one, other, one other thing is, in terms of the relationship between U.S. and Mexico law enforcement, uh, there's an organization called the Western Attorneys General. It's a coalition of AGs across the country. They've established a U.S.-Mexico task force where you have 
state attorneys general working with their colleagues in Mexico, helping them uh, define and refine their criminal justice system. And you know, somebody we've gotten to know is uh, Indiana, the Indiana Attorney General Greg Zeller, Republican Attorney General. Um, he's spent an incredible amount of time, not only on obviously his own state, but sharing information and best practices with his counterparts in Mexico. And that's just made a tremendous uh, difference in Mexico, but it's also made a tremendous difference for General Zeller because he is then a more informed uh, advocate for immigration reform because he understands what's happening. Ma'am, go ahead. I recognize this might be outside the scope of this discussion, but I think it's important to ask all the same. Um, a lot of people come to this country because, you know, they aren't safe in their own countries or they don't feel safe. Um, what could we be doing in addition to changing immigration policy um, internationally to help with this problem? And I know this is something. I, mean, that I think they just touched on it on the Mexican side, but is there, I mean, is it, like you said, your own backyard, but can you expand it? I mean, are, are we doing that already? You said we spend so much money across the world. I mean, I, I think we need to help people grow their economies because I think the world is a really grim place if you don't have any help. And, and frankly, uh, you know, people will tell me, I, I, we, some of the members uh, of Congress had a conversation one day about uh, how they'd never seen anything like this with the unaccompanied minors, that what kind of a parent would send their child, would allow their child to leave that they'd never heard of that. And I said, in, in part of the conversation, it was a really fascinating conversation because I said, yeah, you have heard of that story before. And I said, because I, I know that you all participate, there's a congressional Bible study, and I know that you all have read the story of Moses. And Moses' mother, when she puts Moses in that basket, she has no idea whether that basket is going to sink. She has no idea if that basket is going to get eaten by lions. She has no idea what's going to happen to her son. The only thing she knows is that what's ahead of him is better than what he's leaving behind. And so I think we've got to do something about what they're leaving behind. We've got to help. There's sovereignty issues. But I think you can help uh, develop trading relationships. I think you can create commerce uh, with different countries. We've done it. We've, you know, frankly, the situation in Colombia is now much better uh, than it used to be years ago, and that was with American assistance. I think you can do a little bit of that at a time to help essentially create more stability and more prosperity uh, in Latin America. We're very good at making money and to, in the to U.S. To point, when Joseph and Mary were traveling, I'm glad they ran into three wise men and not three Minutemen. <laughs> <laughs> can I? Uh, the, the, the other thing is he's he's talking about the the economies and the trading relationship, but at least uh, recently under the Merida Initiative, they've started to incorporate some money for social services, for education, yeah. for building schools, for giving hope to young people in Mexico, and the same thing applied in Colombia, for that matter, and it can apply in other Latin America, in Central America, so that young people do not get involved with a drug cartel, so that they don't have a steady recruitment as they do now because of the fact that there's no work, that there's no education, that there's, you know, all of these things lacking in their respective countries. So I think that along with the trade and the commerce, you have to incorporate some uh, assistance for social, social change uh, in the communities in order to lessen the threat of the cartels. Uh, and it, and it doesn't sides. have to be government money. I mean, we can help. We can get private investment to go to Latin America with a lot of countries that want to open, I mean, a lot of businesses that want to open up new markets for their business. Uh, in Latin America, we can help create those markets. That's time for one last question, sir. So from what I've heard over the past few minutes, it seems like this panel is particularly sensitive to the diversity of the foreign-born population in the United States, to the inaccuracy of these overblown, violent reports of border communities, and to the importance um, and complexity of the economic relationship between the United States and Mexico. And so I wonder, to, for all of the panelists, if you, could, um, if you could speculate about your sense of how much, to the extent to which, how much of the, the immigration debate in the United States is derailed by historic misunderstandings um, of, the Mexican, of Mexico and Mexican populations in the United States. Old stereotypes still ring true? Well, uh, you know what, uh, there is some of that, but uh, from, from my point of view, you know, we talked earlier about people who are not from the border and they don't understand. Well, I've taken some senators to the border, uh, and nevertheless, they still advocate some of these draconian measures. Uh, from my point of view, what you have at play here is this fear of Latinos in general and the growing political 
presence of Latinos in this country. And so that the, the, um, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the question of immigration reform, border security, all these other measures that you see, you know, voter ID, voter suppression measures, they're all connected to the fear of the growing Latino political uh, ascendancy, which is inevitable and which is something that instead of being accepted and being appreciated and being, in fact, uh, uh, embraced, is causing this resistance to all of these kinds of laws that would make it better for the Latino community to take its rightful place here in this, in this country. Got to finish it up with that, folks. Thank you, folks, very much. Right up on. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir.